Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 new October films in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing ovation of Royal Dalton Musical. What is this? I mentioned last week that this was a October was a particularly weak uh, and and slim month uh, as far as film watching is concerned for me, and uh, that's pretty true. I watched thirty eight different movies uh, during October, barely more than one a day, which I guess seems like a lot to most people, but for me is actually very very small in in terms of number. And uh, it isn't until literally today that most of these movies had entries into my spreadsheet because of how much time had been pushed back and uh, the amount of recovery I had to do uh, after the Survivor game that I was running and other stuff. So, yeah, it, it's taken a while. Uh, a lot of these movies <clears throat> that I saw in October were 2019 releases. However, most of the ones that make the top 10 are not. Uh, a couple of them are, and I've talked about them, or at least referenced them in the past, so those review, those mentions will be fairly short, uh, but all in all, it's a fairly solid list. Uh, there's nothing bad on this list, uh, but nothing really that great either, uh, but again, your mileage may, va- may vary, and I know there are a couple of movies on here that other people have actually very much enjoyed, so uh, for that, there's there's plenty of variance at play. Uh, The other element is that the vast majority of these, and in fact nine out of the ten of them, uh, were watched uh, by the tenth of the month in October. So only one movie enters my top ten as a new movie uh, after October 10th, which is, again, uh, pretty reflective on the month itself and my watching habits therein. So, all that being said, Let's jump in to my top 10 new movies that I saw for the first time in October, uh, right after this. Starting at number 10, we have a movie that I watched October 8th, 2019. It is about 117 minutes long, just shy of two hours. It is from 1937. My brief summary, a spoiled brat ends up on a fishing boat where he has to work to earn his keep. I gave this a 58. It has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Victor Fleming. Uh, The great Victor Fleming, who directed Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, among other films. It stars Freddie Bartholomew, Spencer Tracy, Lionel Barrymore, Melvin Douglas, Charlie Grapewin, Mickey Rooney, John Carradine, among others. And this is Captain's Courageous. Uh, you know, maybe this isn't a film that everyone is familiar with, everyone's aware of. This is an Oscar-winning film from 1937. Spencer Tracy won an Oscar for his uh, lead performance. It was also a Best Picture nominee, Best Writing nominee, and Best Film Editing nominee. I only give it a 58, and I can kind of speak to that. Uh, It had been a while since I had seen it when I was actually finally logging this on Letterboxd, so a couple of these movies from October don't have reviews attached to them. But the basic idea here is that 
Freddie Bartholomew plays Harvey. He falls overboard uh, on a steamship uh, early in the film and is ultimately rescued by a fishing vessel uh, that is, I believe, captained by Spencer Tracy. Uh, which is interesting because Tracy himself plays a Puerto Rican, um, I believe. Uh, I think I saw that. Yes, por- or no, Portuguese. Not, I'm sorry, Portuguese, not Puerto Rican. So Tracy, uh, it's the 30s, but you know he's, he's a white guy who is enacting a Portuguese accent uh, for the role of Manuel. So there are some inherent issues there uh, that don't really help the film. But behind that and beneath that, I mean, the accent's fine. It's just strange that, of all people, but 1930s, Tracy is very good in this role. He's playing a very, you know, simple trope in film, you know, this sort of father, adopted father figure of a young boy or girl who is just kind of able to spout out these these words of wisdom at the drop of a hat and and teach the kid something that they desperately need to know and learn that they haven't at this point. So, you know, he's playing a very established character, at least by 2019 standards. It probably wasn't quite as uh, run into the ground back in the 30s, but... I'm sure it was still uh, something that had been seen before, at least. But again, Tracy is very good. Freddie Bartholomew, Lionel Barrymore, Melvin Douglas, uh, Mickey Rooney, John Carradine. There's a strong cast here, and they do a good job of, of just creating this atmosphere despite some, let's just say, questionable visual effects for the day. But, you know, that's that's got nothing to do with the performances and the performances are, are good the cast is good the ensemble is good the story itself uh suffers i think you know with tracy playing the very typical role of you know father figure that happens to come along at the right time the film follows that same trajectory and so i don't think there's anything too outstanding from it about it from a writing standpoint visually uh, you know, or, or even character-wise, but I think what elevates it enough to keep it at a, you know, 58, at a high 50 score for me are the performances, the ensemble, the the banter, the inter... the, the relationships that the characters exhibit and, and really pull off convincingly. So, admittedly, you know, if and when I ever get back to the 1930s in my own Circle of Film Award episodes, which... I may not have time to get to, you know, uh, we'll go back as far as I can, but I don't think, I, I don't see this contending in any of those categories, so, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, it was a different time, and, and different things uh, seem to be important, and or uh, respected, and or considered quality back then, than they are now, and... Captain's Courageous was one of them, uh, you know, and to its credit, you know, a lot of people enjoy the movie. It's got a 3.7 average rating on Letterboxd, and that's no small feat. You know, that's over a thousand, over 1,300 ratings is is pretty, you know, small potatoes compared to, you know, a Marvel movie on here, but that's a lot of ratings, 
and a lot of people that that really enjoy the film. So there's certainly things to enjoy about it. I just wasn't that person. I'm just not the right audience, I guess, to appreciate this film and and actually like what we're seeing as opposed to just like, oh yeah, this is a one way to tell this story and it's fine. So number 10 with a 58 is Captain's Courageous. Number nine. Number nine. I saw this October 1st, 2019. Uh, It is 94 minutes long, so fairly short, just over an hour and a half. It's from 1990. My brief summary, a young boy has fantasies that his neighbor is a vampire. I gave this a 58. It has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Philip Ridley. It's the only film of his I've seen. It stars Viggo Mortensen, Lindsay Duncan, Duncan Fraser, David Longworth, and Jeremy Cooper, among others. And this is The Reflecting Skin. This is a pretty fascinating film. Uh, It takes place in the 1950s. I believe Duncan Fraser is the young boy. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is his father. And Lindsay Duncan plays the neighbor who is presumed to be the vampire. And I, I like this mostly from a visual standpoint. I think the performances are solid. Uh, there's nothing you know that goes above. I think Vigo is is good, but solid. But the the idea of this boy who conflates the stories he's told by his father about vampires and and the like, and slowly starts to see that in the world around him, that's a really interesting device. And I'm sure none, 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 none come to mind, but I, I imagine there are many other examples of something like this happening in movies and, and media and stories and so forth. But the way that Philip Ridley conveys that sort of, I don't want to say breakdown, but, but just the, the devolving reality around, uh, Luke Duncan Fraser is, I don't know, it's really engrossing and it's really captivating and it really pulled me in. And I think the movie has a slow start, but once we really move into the, okay, the world around him is shifting, things are not quite as they seem. And and then the question of, well, is this reality? Is this his imagination playing tricks on him? Once that starts to hang over the film, it becomes a lot more entertaining and a lot more uh, involved uh, for the viewer and so watching the the story kind of continue and play out along those lines you become eventually it becomes such that everything is this distorted reality and so you are constantly trying to say okay well if what we're seeing is potentially this imagination run wild then there's a truth to it somewhere. You know, like, if we're seeing a confrontation between two characters from a fantastical perspective, there's an actual confrontation ha- confrontation happening in the real world, and the kid is just embellishing the, the dynamics between them. And so you're trying to pull away these layers while at the same time trying to kind of uh, 
absorb the layers because they are what make the film so exciting. And yeah, it, it's it's a really eerie film. You know, it, it's not given, you know, it doesn't use a light hand with a lot of the imagery here. There are some pretty dramatically difficult to watch things. And that only kind of adds more to to the the boy's imagination. Uh, you now now you have to contend his if his imagination is conjuring up all these dis- disturbing images, you know that's that's a whole other layer on top of what was already a fairly complex story. So I liked it. I don't. I still you know again I think the opening is pretty slow. I think some of the performances are outside of the main trio of Mortensen, Duncan, and Fraser. I think some of the performances are are a little weak, but it's a very interesting film, told very well, and with some pretty dazzling uh, visuals that I I really appreciated. So, number nine, The Reflecting Skin, with a 58. Number eight is a film I saw October 3rd, 2019. It is 91 minutes long, and will be the shortest film on this top 10. It is from 1933, also making it the oldest film on this month's top 10. My summary, two men and a woman enter into a strange three-part relationship. I gave this a 59. It has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Ernst Lubitsch, who directed To Be or Not To Be, The Shop Around the Corner, Ninochka, and Heaven Can Wait, among others and is known for his comedies, his romance and and sophistication, as it were. It stars Frederick March, Gary Cooper, Miriam Hopkins, among others. Those are the main trio. And this is Design for Living. Design for Living is such an in it's such a strange movie because it's a pre-code film, so you get to see a lot of things that wouldn't have been possible, you know, just 10 years later, and or probably even earlier than that. And the, the dynamic between March, Cooper, and Hopkins as this thruple, this three-person couple, are pretty interesting. You know, you get the two men and, and Miriam Hopkins playing Gilda, so uh, Gary Cooper plays George, Frederick March plays Tom. George and Tom are friends. They both meet Gilda separately, and she decides to date them separately. And when they, everything kind of comes to a head, uh, rather than the two men, you know, kind of duel for her or whatever might normally happen in a, you know, movie like this or, you know, have one step aside or this, that, the other, she... Uh, convinces them to continue and and not only continue with the two parent couples that they have formed but to kind of just be all together and and enjoy life as a thruple in a way and that is very risque for the time and and very interesting and very compelling uh, from um, from a historical standpoint, watching a movie like this. But 
it also is able to convey a, a, ver a strange sense of autonomy and independence for Miriam Hopkins' character Gilda. You know, this is a role that, as is even pointed out in the film, you know, like if a if the genders were reversed, if it was a guy and two women, you know, people wouldn't think twice. And yet, because the genders are the way they are in this movie, there's a completely different connotation to what's being shown, to what we're seeing, to what's happening. And pointing that out is, I think, a really good thing. You know, this is something that you would even see in today's movies. You know, a, a film where you do have characters gender swapped for the simple fact reason that they use that 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 their very existence comments on a status and, and a situation in society. You know, the like for simple like, like uh, you know maybe it's not it's not quite this simple now, but just having a woman doing anything science related at this time would have been, you know, such a big deal. Or even a job to even, you know, derive even further. Uh, a woman in a position of power, you know, all these different things. Uh, you can see them in these old movies. And eventually they kind of drift away for a while until they come back, you know, in a more recent era. And I love seeing those things. I, again, the movie itself uh, is kind of weak. I don't think the writing's that great. Uh, I do like a lot of Lubitsch's films, but this is not one that I think he, he gives enough attention to and treats well enough. But I, I, I think for its very nature and for for its very conversation starting premise and plot it is a a valuable and worthy film to have been made um i think i don't know again it's really short i think it's worth checking out if if you have a minute i believe i watched this on the criterion channel so it's possibly on there but i might not have um, mm -mm. I don't know. Might have have been, and maybe it's not there anymore. Uh, either way, Designed for Living, my number eight. Uh, from October, the 59. Number seven is the film I saw October 9th, 2019. It's 120 minutes long, making it two hours long, and also the longest film on this top ten. It's from 1982. My summary, an American writer disappears during a Chilean coup. I give this a 61. It has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Costa Gavras, who directed Z, and a bunch of other films. He is a Greek filmmaker. Uh, uh, and this is, stars Jack Lemmon, Sissy Spacek, John Shea, Melanie Marin, and David Clennon, among others. And that's Missing missing i think there's a lot to enjoy about missing it's a very hard-nosed drama uh, lemon and lemon is looking for his son in chile and sissy spacek is his son's wife and the two of them journey there to figure out what's happening and they kind of become embroiled in this whole political 
takeover, uh, military takeover that's happening in Chile. And it slowly begins to involve not only the United States and uh, their role in this whole and um, conflict, but also uh, the two characters themselves, Lemon and Spacek, and how they kind of fit into things. So there's a lot of good, meaty plot to be worked with and, and pushed into and and wrapped around and, and and so forth in this movie. And, and I think it definitely delivers on that side of things. But despite all of that, I really couldn't find myself invested in the film. I think Lemon and Spacek are great. I, I love them generally and everything. Uh, the film won an Oscar for writing. Lemon and Spacek were both nominated for lead performances. It was a Best Picture nominee. I get all that. I respect all that. And I see why. I just personally could not get invested. I, I personally was not able to find an entrance point into this movie. Could be the 37-year time gap between when this happened, or when this was uh, made and put out, released, and when I'm watching it. Uh, you know, it is based on real experiences. And I think Costa Gavras, who... You know, Z is the other film, only other film of his I've seen, is another that I respect, but I wasn't super, I wasn't overly fond of. And Missing feels very much in the same vein. I think there's a slightly, you know, as much as I tried to connect to the film through Lemon and Spacek's characters as the Americans displaced in another country, it, it was just very difficult. And I think that barrier to entry is really what ended up, you know, putting the wall between me and the film. Uh, so it's unfortunate. And again, you know, like so many of these films, like it's a very well-liked film. A lot of people are very, very much enjoy it, or if not enjoy, at least uh, recognize the greatness within it. I think there's a implicit uh, problem in the way the film is able to connect to the viewer. I think it has a lot of trouble uh, finding its footing in that sense. And so it, it, I've really struggled, uh, especially especially in the second half of the film. You know, I think the further and deeper the characters become embroiled into this, you know, quote-unquote conspiracy, takeover, whatever, it just gets that much more convoluted and becomes that that much more difficult to connect to anything that's happening on the screen. So my number seven for October is Missing with a 61. 61. Uh, which brings us to number six, which is uh, a film that came out this year and that I've already talked about, so I won't spend too long here. I saw it October 3rd, 2019. It's 116 minutes long. It's a 2019 film. My summary, a mentally troubled comedian goes down a spiral of social revolution and crime. You may have a guess as to what this is. I gave it a 64. It has a 69% last time I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Todd Phillips, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Robert De Niro, Zazie Beetz, Francis Conroy, Brett Cullen, Shea Wiggum, Bill Camp, Glenn Fleshler, Lee Gill, Josh Piast, Mark Marone, Brian Tyree Henry, among others. And it's Joker. Joker is is a phenomenon, apparently. It's making so much money at the box office. It is 
just blowing away the competition financially. It has strong reviews. People love it as a 3.9 average rating on, on Letterboxd. It is still in the top 20 movies of all time on IMDb, currently number 16 with an 8.8 average rating. The thing's got its fans for sure. And I'm not really a detractor. I think it's a good movie. I like a lot of parts. A lot of parts of it. I think Phoenix is absolutely phenomenal. There are some really visceral and, and brilliant moments that Phillips creates with this character and then this story. But like I've, I'm sure I alluded to in my review, which I don't remember much of what I said then. There are some issues. Uh, there are some very significant screenplay issues and and writing and and plot points going on. Uh, but yeah, it's a good film. I think it's, uh, if I rewatched it, which I'm, I'm sure I may, if I rewatched it, I think I would be more likely to increase its rating than drop it. I think I respect, uh, what's done with Zazie Beetz character and, and, uh, the, the Joaquin Phoenix mental perspective on the whole, I do think that some of the Batman, Gotham, comic t- ties are a little heavy-handed, but I do like the mental, uh, the way the film approaches uh, Joker's mental instability, as it were. So, has its problems. I, I still think it's a good film. I get why everybody, not everybody, but I get why so many people are very, very much in favor of the film and uh, I think Phoenix is almost a lock for a nomination come February and seems to be a lock for a nomination for me as well at this point so Joker my number six uh, with a 64 in October or was that number five one two no that's number six yes Number six. All right, number five. Another J movie. This one, October 7th, 2019. It's also 116 minutes long. It's from 1953. My summary, the assassination of a ruler causes consequences on the people and the republic. I also gave this a 64. It has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who is the director of All About Eve, Sleuth, Cleopatra, Guys and Dolls, uh, as among others. It is starring Marlon Brando, James Mason, John Gielgud, Louis Carne, Greer Garson, Deborah Kerr, Edmund O'Brien, among others. And this is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, uh, based on Shakespeare's play. Uh, this ultimately was nominated for five Oscars, including picture, Brando's performance as lead actor, score, cinematography, and then one uh, best art direction, set direction, which has since been called production design. So big film at the time, uh, still a fairly well-recognized film. Brando is is a force, and you know I, I love seeing young Brando act. He's he's really so captivating, so impressionable, so devastating uh, in his performances. And Caesar, uh, he doesn't play Caesar, he plays Mark Antony. 
as Mark Antony, he is able to continue to be those things in this role, and his nomination is well-deserved. I wish, however, um, I wish that it had been just a little more, I don't know, it's, here's the, I think the problem is that Caesar's story, and, and not only Caesar's story, but the Shakespeare play uh, that this film is adapted from, is an epic. It is a huge story with a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, and it and, and by adapting it, it comes with a lot of inherent issues. One, uh, it, it is a little confusing. There are so many characters. The film is less than two hours long and just shy of two hours long. And so it, it takes a lot of, of cramming and shortening and abbreviating to fit everything into it. Um, you've got Shakespeare's dialogue either ripped word for word or slightly adjusted. And all of a sudden, you know, that becomes its own problem. And on top of that, it is an epic. You know, this is a Ben-Hur level epic that could have easily been three hours long. And I'm not sure why it wasn't. You know, I don't know if that necessarily makes it a better movie. But I think the film and the, and the content and the material and the act, the cast is incredible, uh, deserves or could have or could have deserved such an such an extended length of time. You know, another hour, maybe it doesn't need that whole time, but I think it really could have filled it uh, with important details. And that could have potentially helped uh, the viewer and, and, you know, and most people understand better the characters and their situations and, and the plots they're going through if you weren't familiar with the story itself, which I am, but not probably enough as, as I'm finding out. That said, uh, the film looks great. You know, I'm sure 50, early 50s budget, it cost a lot for the costumes, for the production, for the locations, uh, to, to shoot it with these amazing stars in it. It probably took a lot, and, and maybe that's why it's not longer. Could be. Uh, it also... It also kind of does this very much problematic uh, shift between the, the dramatic and the action. You know, there are a couple of battle scenes in the film, and they move very quickly. And naturally, if, if this was a play, there's a reason. You know, you can't just... Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that adapting this from the play and, and the, that shortening this film really cause, or there are a lot of problems that adapting this from the play and shortening the film really cause in the final product. And I don't know. I think, you know, maybe it's a budget thing. Again, you could have had a bigger battle sequence that could have been more impactful, that could have been more devastating and emotionally invested. And yet... Um, it still does feel like, I don't know, it's a followable, not follow, it's, it's a watchable film. And I think 
if you're not trying to follow it all completely, if you're not trying to be to to you know understand it perfectly, uh, you're gonna find you're gonna be fine. And the more you invest into the film, unfortunately, I think the less you get out of it because it does cut off and shorten key elements. It does uh, abbreviate big moments in this movie in the story it does it cuts down on the battles it cuts down on the characters it cuts down on you know the epicness of what happened you know julius caesar is a huge name there is a reason his name is so familiar so recognizable so household he's taught in every classroom in the world probably i guess maybe not all every in the world but but most of them and yet i think you know, this film shortchanges that story to a degree. And so that's kind of my issue. Like I said, I think the performances are very strong across the board. I think what we do get looks great, um, both from a production standpoint and from a costume standpoint and, you know, etc. And, uh, you know, it's... For an abbreviated version of the story, I think it, it serves it well just not great so my number five from 2019's october is julius caesar with a 64 <clears throat> number four i saw this october 2nd 2019 it is 94 minutes long it is from 1953 my summary a priest under suspicion of murder struggles with whether or not to break the seal of the confessional to reveal the truth. I gave this a 65. It has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Alfred Hitchcock. That Alfred Hitchcock. It stars Montgomery Clift and Baxter, Carl Malden, among others, and that is I Confess. I touched on this a little bit uh, doing the top 10 October-born actors list with Montgomery Clift, who features on that list, and his role in this movie as um, as a uh, friar, I believe, his, his character, and the way that he's able to be so reserved, and you can see the inner struggle over this conflict that he has to address. You know, he's... He, by, by, by not coming forward, he himself becomes a suspect in an investigation, and that is very much a problem and, and something worth exploring. And I think Hitchcock is, is a great person to, to explore this dilemma. And, you know, as this is a much more reserved character, for Clift, he plays it very mundane, uh, almost to the point of, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's my favorite performance of his. I like him when he's a little more outgoing, a little more energetic and, and magnetic, but but he's still good. Uh, he's still a good actor, and uh, beyond that, I think the film mostly excels from Hitchcock. I think he's able to, as he always is, create suspense, create intrigue, create thrills, uh, where even the smallest, uh, in, most insignificant element of a movie can suddenly become the most important part. And I think Hitchcock is so good at doing that and, and making those, and then elevating the status of a, of a smaller 
detail. So I think it's a good movie. Uh, I don't particularly, I don't know, it's not one I, I plan to revisit, but as a Hitchcock film, you know, you can't really go wrong. And, you know, it, it, oh, it absolutely has his trademarks and his, his, his qualities to it. So my number four from October uh, with a score of 65 is I Confess. Number three, another film I've already talked about and touched upon uh, is uh, from October. I saw it's October 7th. It is 101 minutes long. It is a 2019 film. My summary, a young man enlists in a dojo to learn how to defend himself. Gave this a 66. It has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Riley Stearns, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Alessandro Nivola, Imogen Poots, among others. And that is The Art of Self-Defense. I like The Art of Self-Defense. It is Fight Club-esque, as I said in my Letterboxd review, and I've talked about this on the show before. Uh, The cast is great, and the film's strength uh, is in its dark comedy, but it doesn't always follow through on those those aspects of the film. It sometimes veers into other genres, and I don't think it was quite as strong in those other genres. So I recommend Art of Self-Defense. I think it's a good watch. I think if you like stuff like Fight Club, you'll enjoy this. And even if you don't, you might enjoy this anyway. Uh, so my number three from October, The Art of Self-Defense uh, with a 66. Number two, runner-up, uh, is the film with the lowest Rotten Tomato score of the 10. Saw this October 17th. It is a 2019 film that is 92 minutes long. My summary, the growing pains of a snarky family during the fallout from a zombie apocalypse. I gave this a 67. Last I looked, it had a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Ruben Fleischer, who directed the first film in the franchise, as well as Venom and some other stuff. It stars Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, again, Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin, Zoe Deutsch, Rosario Dawson, Luke Wilson, Thomas Middleditch, among others. This is Zombieland, Double Tap. I was a big fan of the first Zombieland. Uh, Upon rewatch, prior to seeing this movie, it is... Not quite as good as I remembered it, but it is still a fun movie that I enjoy. And Double Tap, the sequel, 10 years later, is also a good movie. I think it's a, it's a step, it's a slightly weaker film than a, as opposed to the first one. The first one was just much more original. I think the characters felt fresher. And here we've got all these actors who are now Oscar nominees or winners in their own right. And... They've come back for more, and of course they're great. Like, undeniably, they're all good actors. The characters are still fun. The new characters in the film, particularly Zoe Deutsch, who in my opinion stole the movie, uh, are fun and exciting. But there's a degree to which it does feel like retreading old ground. And that sucks. Uh, because such such a key element in the first movie was... Breslin and Stone's characters running away. And by the end of it, the in, the, inten- the idea was that 
they were there to stay. And of course, we skip ahead 10 years and, and various things have changed and various um, events have taken place. And the characters are all in a new spot. But uh, I don't know. I think a lot of the, the characters themselves don't really feel to have changed at all in those 10 years. And of course, how much can characters change when they spend 10 years in a zombie apocalypse? Who's to say? But it does seem like Walking Dead had quite a bit of character growth on its show uh, while it was supposedly good. But here, there's not too much of it. And that's a shame. And I think that inhibits it and prevents it from really excelling at, like the original or even more than the original. And so it ultimately ends up being below the original, in my opinion. Still a fun movie. Still a lot, uh, a lot to enjoy and a lot of good meta humor and so forth. But yeah, Zombieland Double Tap, it's fun. It's fun. It's a fun movie and I liked it. My number two from October, the first, with the first for the first time seeing it. Uh, so that's Zombieland Double Tap, the only movie I saw after October 10th that makes this list. Uh, number two in October, number with a 67 overall. Which brings us to number one. <clears throat> number one, I saw this October 1st, 2019. Uh, it might have been the first film I saw of the month, and it held on to this position by the skin of its teeth. It has 100, 111 minutes long. It's a 1982 film. My summary, and this probably gives it away, an old nemesis of Kirk's comes back to get revenge. I gave this a 69. It has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Nicholas Meyer, starring the talents of William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Ricardo Montalban, Kirstie Alley, Bibi Besh, Merritt Butrick, Walter Koenig, James Duan, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, among others. <clears throat> and that is Star Trek II, The Wrath of of Khan. I think uh, from my, my understanding, uh, and, and currently I'm in the process of watching all of the Star Trek films, but my understanding is that this is the oft-cited best Star Trek movie. It's at least what I'm led to believe. And I think it is a good movie. Uh, at the time, it is the, as of right now, it is my second favorite Star Trek movie from the not new ones. So pre Chris Pine era. Uh, and, and it may still be after I rewatch the Chris Pine films. It remains to be seen. I really like The Wrath of Khan. I think you, the biggest issue that the Star Trek films have, in my opinion, is villains. And Wrath of Khan itself is. Khan himself is a great villain. Ricardo Montalban is fantastic. Uh, I love him in this movie. I think he does a great job uh, conveying such a terrifying and powerful premise. Uh, conveying a powerful premise. Premise? Um, maybe. I don't know. There's a, there's, I guess my biggest hiss, hitch with this film is that there's clearly a lot of history between Khan and uh, Kirk. And unfortunately, most of that is buried in the TV show, from what I'm, un, uh, from what I understand. 
the film tries to embellish some of that story a bit, but I do think it kind of lets us down to a degree, which is a shame. I think that that history is probably very rich, very important, and uh, deserves its time, you know, to be shown. And that is kind of an inherent issue when you're making movies uh, based on a TV show and using characters from a TV show that have a very huge past and you can't, can, you obviously can't convey all that in two hours. Uh, so ultimately, I think that Wrath of Khan really, beyond the villain element, there's a, another step up here from the first film, the motion picture, where you've got a huge production. Uh, you know, the budget on this movie was increased. It's It looks great compared to the original. Uh, the score of all these films is generally a highlight, uh, and, and Wrath of Khan is no exception. The other thing I didn't like, though, was Christy Alley. Kirsty Alley as Lieutenant Savick. Um, Christie Alley, not uh, not a good actor. No, she's, she's not very good. And this is certainly no showcase of her abilities. So that said, I really like it. It's my second favorite Star Trek film of the rewatch so far. Uh, the first being First Contact and uh, Wrath of Khan earns its spot uh, at the top toward the top of the list and and perhaps uh you know I, I mean i'm mostly curious to see how this informs my rewatch of into darkness when we get to that because i think that is going to be a very very fascinating um experience rewatching into darkness so all that said, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, my number one from October uh, with a 69 overall. Like I said, this is a fairly weak month. Uh, I did not watch anything exceptional, in my opinion. Uh, just some a couple of good things here and there, and a lot of bad things that didn't come close to the list. So, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, let me run down the top ten one last time, uh, just in case you want to know it. Captain's Courageous, The Reflecting Skin, Design for Living, Missing, Joker, Julius Caesar, I Confess, The Art of Self-Defense, Zombieland, Double Tap, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Thank you for listening. As always, if you would like to find more episodes, uh, you can go to iTunes, Stitcher, most places where podcasts can be found. You can also head over to the website, circleoffilm.com, for this and much more. You can find me on Twitter at Circle of Film. You can email circleoffilm at gmail.com, or you can uh, follow me on Letterboxd, Circle of Film. You can support the show, like it, rate it, review it, subscribe to it, listen to it, tell somebody about it, whatever. All those are great. Happy by all for all of those listening, obviously, you know, is the best thing you can do. But if you are so inclined, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash circle of film, uh, where you can find early access to all episodes that are released early, in addition to some other fun things. Thank you, and as always, have a week. So long, farewell, and
Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.